You are listening to the Sharp End Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut, protecting you while protecting the environment. Mammut is not only focused on integrating leading safety technology into every product so you can confidently push your boundaries, but also committed to continuing to preserve what is worth preserving and to improve what is not yet perfect. For this month, we are giving away a Nirvana 18 liter ski pack. The Nirvana 18 is the perfect pack for skiing or snowboarding with an extensive feature set that's great for on or off piece terrain. Not only does the pack have all the bells and whistles to store your safety equipment and keep it comfortable, its main material is recycled, making this an environmentally friendly product piece. Hashtag confidently go. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to find out how you can win this giveaway. This episode is also supported by Kavu. Designed in Seattle, Washington, Kavu has been weaving fun into everything it produces since 1993. Kavu is an acronym for Clear Above, Visibility Unlimited, when there isn't a cloud in the sky and you can see to the horizon. That limitless feeling is their guiding philosophy and the attitude Kavu brings to all they do. It means making the most of every day and getting out and doing whatever puts a smile on your face. Kavu clothing, bags, and accessories are an expression of this approach to life. Get busy living. Enjoy 50% off any item with promo code FUNHASNOSEASON at kavu.com. Thank you to the Colorado Hour Bound School and Sunto for the additional support. I caught up with Dave Weber to talk about a subject that hits pretty close to home for me. Dave has been on the show a couple times now, and it is always a pleasure having him back. He spends about half his time up in Alaska working with the National Park Service doing mountain rescue with a team based in Talkeetna. And then the other half of the year, when the climbing season in Alaska finishes up, he spends his time in Utah working as a flight paramedic for Intermountain Life Flight. Welcome to the show, Dave. Um, and today um, I have you on to talk about carbon monoxide poisoning. Dun, dun, dun. I know. <laughs> Sounds like you've got a story about that, maybe. Yes. Um, and this has uh, been a struggle for me to talk about really any of my personal stories. Um, it's really interesting being on the other side of the interview. But um, yeah, I do think it's valuable to share this story with the listeners because it did happen to me. Um, so we'll go ahead and start with that. Um, this was about maybe seven years ago. And I was in Alaska, but we took a couple of sleds up to the Valdez Glacier and we ended it way up on the third bench where we were going to do some winter glacier camping and ski a bunch of the spine lines sort of around this um, glacier cirque um, of these super amazing mountains. And there, there were three of us, uh, including myself. And we had this beautiful, beautiful base camp set up with an Arctic oven tent, which has the double breathable walls. Um, and they're meant to uh, breathe pretty well so you can, you know, cook inside of them. That's what they sort of how they market them. Um, and we were camping up there for the plan was to be up there for a couple weeks. Uh, third day, um, our good weather forecast turned into this huge storm. And we ended up just digging for two or three days straight, just digging, 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 so our tent wouldn't get buried. Um, and one of the afternoons, while we were sort of taking a break inside the tent, uh, I kind of got sleepy and just sort of wanted to lay down and take a nap. Uh, and one of um, the other guys 
uh, Brandon, he said, yeah, you know, I think I'm just going to take a nap. And the third guy, uh, he, he wasn't super sleepy and, um, but he just sort of kind of hung out in the tent and then he stepped out for a second and he realized once he stepped out that fresh air was, was really refreshing. Mm-hmm. And he said, Hey Ash, Hey Brandon, you guys need to come out of the tent right now. And we said, no, we're okay. We're just going to take a nap. We're, you know, pretty sleepy. And he says, no, get out of the tent right now, or I'm going to drag you out. <laughs> and so <laughs> we're like, oh, that's kind of aggressive, but okay. So yeah, we put on our boots and we step outside and we were almost gasping for air. Um, once we stepped outside and then we realized, wow, we, we got carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, we had been cooking in the tent that morning and that afternoon, um, trying to stay warm. Um, and despite our efforts of trying to maintain, you know, cooking with the door cracked a little bit and it's, it still didn't help because there was so much snow cramming down on our tent that, um, some of those vents weren't venting properly. Uh, so that's, that's my story. Um, I'm really thankful that, uh, you know, that third person, uh, did step outside and didn't take a nap with us. Cause I don't think any of us would have woken up. Wow. Uh, that is a classic story about CEO poisoning in so many ways that I think first, thanks for sharing. I think just like you're trying to do with every episode of this podcast, I think to be able to learn from other people's uh, accidents or near misses, I think is the whole point. And it's, it's brave of all the people to come on here to share those stories. And it's, it's tough to do that. I think as you <laughs> can attest, how you just described that event is, is a really classic kind of setup for how we see carbon monoxide or co poisoning and and probably through this this chat i'll, I'll kind of use those interchangeably um but it, at baseline carbon monoxide poisoning is a poisoning and it, i i really like how i've heard it phrased before that a poison is any time we've got a substance in our body in too great a quantity. So anything can be a poison to us. And you, you think of kind of the classic ones of like maybe medications or uh, in, insect stings, or maybe we ingest uh, something that we're allergic to can kind of be a poison to a person. In this case, it's a it's carbon monoxide that's a poison, but you can take it so far as to just water. You drink too much water, you hear about people becoming hyponatremic and having essentially kind of water poisoning. And so anything in too great a quantity in our bodies is a poison, period. Um, there's pretty much only four ways that that toxins or poisons can get into our body. Uh, we can ingest them, either eat or drink them. We can inhale them, which is the case here with carbon monoxide. You can absorb them through your skin or your mucous membranes. And lastly, you can have them injected, like as the case of some medications or kind of the insect sting scenario. So today we'll be focusing mainly on this inhaled poison um, or the carbon monoxide uh, poisoning. Um, it's, there's of course a really complex kind of physiologic mechanism that makes this happen. But in the most simple terms, um, when we breathe in the, the environmental air around us, there's usually about 21% oxygen in that air. When we breathe that into our lungs, 
those oxygen molecules are transferred into our bloodstream or our blood circulation um, at the red blood cells. And within the red blood cells, there's protein. Um, that protein's hemoglobin, if you've heard of that. But on those hemoglobin proteins, there's receptors. And it's those red blood cell receptors that carry oxygen. So when we breathe in uh, the environmental air around us, that oxygen molecule or those oxygen molecules are transferred to our red blood cells, which are then circulated out to our system and to all our tissues and cells and organs. Um, those hemoglobin within our red blood cells have some attraction to oxygen. Um, the problem with carbon monoxide is the affinity or the attraction between that is 200 to 250 times greater for carbon monoxide than it is for oxygen. So if there is the option for the hemoglobin to bind to carbon monoxide versus oxygen, it's going to pick carbon monoxide every time. It's 200, right. 200 times, 200, 250 times more likely to do that. So that's one of the issues here um, is when it has the choice or when there's both of those things in the air, or the air that we breathe in, it's picking carbon monoxide. Um, and so the other issue is it hold then it holds on to it for a long time. Um, you know, we talk about half-lifes in medicine and science and half-life for these can be anywhere kind of four to six hours that those molecules can then be stuck to that receptor, meaning nothing else is getting in there. And so if you fill up a bunch of your hemoglobin receptors with carbon monoxide, it's going to be there for a while. Okay, so uh -huh. when you were in that tent uh, with your partner, the the, essentially the parts of your red blood cells that were now attached to carbon monoxide were going to stay attached for some time and some length of time. So it's not something that as soon as you came out, those, those molecules weren't releasing then. You were just hopefully then any open receptors, you were then going to fill with oxygen. But the ones that were already full, likely going to stay that way for a while till your body's able to kind of process it and absorb it and flush that out of your system. So, so those are kind of the two problems, the affinity piece where it's more attracted and the other piece of how long it stays attached to your, to your red blood cells, which is a bummer on both accounts. Um, kind of how, what you started to see and what your, your partner started to see is, is I'd like to keep it really simple of like, what are we going to see in ourselves and our partners? And so one of the first things we're going to see is the brain effects of it. And that's what you were experiencing when you're like, ah, I just don't feel like I got a ton of energy. Like I just want to sleep. Uh, yeah. You might've had a headache and you're like, I just want to lay here and rest. Um, and so those are some of the brain effects. I, I like to say that kind of each of our major body systems and organ systems has a vital sign. So like your heart's vital sign is heart rate. And then, and the rhythm and quality of that heart rate and your respiratory system, like your lungs, how they're doing, we check that out with a respiratory rate, vital sign. You're like skin, which is your body's biggest organ. We check out the vital sign for the skin with its color, temperature, and moisture. But then your brain has its own vital sign. And that's usually the level of consciousness or level of responsiveness or mental status. It can be called a bunch of different things, but it's all the same thing. It's like, how's your brain doing? And in your case, and in most other cases with carbon monoxide poisoning, what we see is the brain vital sign has changes. And that's what you mm -hmm. started to experience, just like everyone else. Like at low kind of concentrations, when we just have a little bit of carbon monoxide, you might not feel anything at all. But kind of as it starts to either we have 
more and more carbon monoxide levels in our body, or we're exposed for longer and longer periods of time. Like you, it sounded like you were in the tent for most of that day or up mm-hmm. leading up yeah, the, that. the whole morning pretty much. And then early afternoon, we, that's when we started to figure out something was wrong. Yeah. And so you c- could have had two things going on. Either it was really high carbon monoxide levels in your tent, or maybe more likely you'd just been in there for so long and exposed to it for so long that now a bunch of your receptors are now f- essentially bonded to carbon monoxide instead of oxygen. So you started maybe first, you didn't have any symptoms in the morning, then slowly, uh, now I'm starting to feel fatigued or uh, I might not feel lazy lethargy. Yeah. Like medically we typically call that like malaise. Like you're just like, I'm kind of apathetic and I'm not going to like fix this problem. I just want to lay here. Like Mm -hmm. maybe you'd start to feel a headache after that and then nausea vomiting, but it's all these things that kind of feel like the flu kind of feel like you just feel crummy and sick. And so it's all the things that when we feel normally, we're like, well, let's just lay here and sleep in bed for a couple of days and it'll get better. <laughs> and that's exactly the wrong thing to do in this scenario. If you were to kind of let it keep going uh, and, and progressing, if you stayed in there longer, you might have gotten really confused or dizzy as, it, as the kind of level of carbon monoxide in your system continued to elevate. If you were to get up and move around, and I don't know if you felt this way when you did finally get up and leave the tent, you said you felt like you were gasping and, and for that, but you might have been a bit ataxic, which is that term we talk about when you're a little stumbly with your gait. Like you might have noticed, like, hey, I'm not feeling really coordinated right now, or I'm having a hard time, like, you know, zipping or unzipping clothes or getting out of my sleeping bag or walking out of the tent. Oh yeah, um, all of those things for sure. Like putting on my boots was was a chat was a challenge. Right. And, and it was great of your friend. I think the best thing I heard in that story, uh, who was your friend that was outside? Did you say Brandon? No, he was inside. Dorian was um, outside. So Dorian did the absolute right thing where he realized that these two people, my friends aren't fixing their problem. And so he had to be really aggressive and be like, look, get out of this tent or I'm going to get you out of the tent. And that's exactly yeah. the right thing to do. Cause like Ashley's just going to lay there <laughs> and let herself go to sleep. Um, and so if you hadn't gotten up, then we start to see kind of the severe end uh, of these signs and symptoms where you, people lose consciousness and uh, then that proceeds eventually to dead. And so, you know, given some more length of time, he wouldn't have been able to wake you up maybe, or you wouldn't have responded at all. And he would have had to just drag the two of you out. Thankfully, it didn't get anywhere there, but you can see it's easy and a slippery slope where you feel tired. I'm just going to lay here. Then you stay in that environment and everything just kind of cascades till eventually people die from this. Um, I think for you, similar to kind of early stage hypothermia, where the biggest problem with this is the patient, you just start to feel crummy and start to feel sleepy and you're not very motivated to fix it. And I think that is one of the biggest things we see in your scenario and um, in kind of the mountaineering and climbing context. When people start to have kind of the early stages of carbon monoxide poisoning, they're not going to fix it themselves often. And so they just stay in that environment and then we see some of these catastrophic outcomes. Um, it's just so interesting because I, I knew what carbon monoxide poisoning was, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that it was happening to me. I just thought I was tired. Right. I didn't realize I that was happening to me at all. So um, it's just interesting how it kind of sneaks up on you. 
Yeah, for sure. Especially in your case and in the climbing context, it's not like you're walking into a burning building, say, where there's tons of carbon monoxide and it's really obnoxious. And you're like, whoa, you just had this really long exposure to probably low grade or low concentration of carbon monoxide that just over time, your body's just taking this in and taking it in and taking it in. And, and then you see kind of the end results also start to exhibit themselves over a kind of longer period of time. Um, I, I think too, it's, it's something we struggle with in our program on Denali as well. We've got all these cook tents, Arctic ovens, just like you and, and similar where you've got these big kind of structure tents that, yeah, they say they're ventilated and they say they're meant for cooking or having like a, a portable heater in them. And in reality, like they just don't vent that well. And we'll talk about that at the end kind of with prevention, but we've put all sorts of carbon monoxide monitors in our cook tents on Denali historically. And half the time we end up throwing them out of the cook tent because they beep all the time and it's really annoying. (laughs) And so that's our solution is like, wow, this thing's really loud and obnoxious. And instead of fixing the ventilation and dealing with it, sometimes we're just hucking that noisemaker out the door (laughs) where it stopped beeping. And so I think this is actually probably a much more prevalent problem than we like to think um, and that people just might be experiencing in less severity than you did. And so, but maybe just kind of this low grade chronic exposure over the course of an expedition or a ski trip, uh, kind of like you did. Um, we had a story a couple of years ago, I think that, that you had mentioned when we talked about doing this podcast um, and it was published in the most recent edition of accidents in North American climbing. And it happened in 2008 climbing season for us um, but it was one that I responded to and the team of, of volunteers I had with me responded to and one of the closest calls we've had with carbon monoxide in recent years we have had fatalities on the mountain before um, but this one in particular uh, I, I think kind of brought this all back into our team's consciousness and then also kind of the the guiding community on the mountain that hey, even though we don't see these severe events all that often, we might actually be seeing this more than we think, especially for some of those guides that are in their cook tents for hours a day, boiling water and making food for big groups of people. Um, but it, it, this event occurred on uh, June 6th in 2018. It was actually just around dinner time. We were probably halfway through our dinner over at the Park Service tent at 14,200 camp on the mountain. And, and one of the guides that had been over at our tent uh, at the beginning of dinner, hanging out with us, came running back to our tent. And I could hear kind of muffled screaming outside our tent as he uh, kind of made the the hundred yard run through deep snow back to our location and let us know that there was an emergency over in camp. Uh, what we ended up responding to uh, was a 40 year old male climber who had been pulled from his tent Um, And he had a 44-year-old male climbing partner who had also been in that tent, uh, kind of set the scene for everybody. The weather had been very poor for for that day and the day prior um, at 14 camp. And so a lot of people were kind of hunkered down. There wasn't many people moving around on those days due to the poor weather. And so people were staying in tents most of the day, cooking in tents, and pretty much just getting out maybe for some fresh air and to go to the bathroom. Uh, some people not even leaving their tent to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so people were kind of, everybody was kind of hunkered down those days. Um, the kind of story we heard and what we responded to um, 
was that there had been an unresponsive male. The first one, the 40-year-old male climber, was unresponsive in his tent, had been drugged from his tent uh, by his partner and also with the help of some other folks that were in the, the vicinity, um, completely unresponsive and seizing when he was pulled out. Um, by the time we showed up, which was probably kind of in the, the five to 10 minutes after the patient had been pulled out, he was no longer seizing, um, but he, he was also no longer unresponsive. He was responding to painful stimuli. And so I, over the course of kind of the next 20 to 30 minutes, um, that patient came around with a combination of the fresh air that we had exposed him to and getting him out of that tent. And then the, the other pieces, we were able to bring supplemental oxygen uh, to the scene and provide him that. Um, and so a combination of those two things allowed his mental status to essentially return to uh, GCS of 14 or so, or kind of the on the AVPU scale, A and O times three. So he remembered name, place, and time, but didn't really have a great recall on the events um, for quite some time. And really through the whole course of our care over the next couple of days, never really remembered all those events. So stayed kind of that A and O times three or A and O times uh, three and a half, if there is one, uh, mental status. Um, so for us, I, I think this is a really eye-opening, uh, scenario where had his climbing partner, the 44 year old male we talked about not gotten out of that tent, like your partner did, we would have been responding to a very different scene. Could have been later that day, could have been multiple days from there. Our typical kind of daily checks through camp or going up to tents to be like, hey, park service here, anybody in there. If they had died, we wouldn't have heard anything from them. Assume they were out climbing. So it could have been days before we discovered these folks. I don't know how close to death these two were. I could never make that assumption, but it was close. It would have happened, you know, I don't know, in the next hour or two uh, if they had both remained in there. Luckily, the 44 year old male climber had gotten out of the tent when he started to feel ill. Because of that, just like your friend, when he got out into the kind of fresh air, realized, oh, that air in there is not okay. That stove's on. I need to change the scenario. So he spent a couple of minutes, he said, outside trying to get his bearings. And then by the time he went back in, um, his, his partner had been responsive and had been talking to him when he left. That patient had already become unresponsive and was seizing in, you know, a couple minutes time um, of him being out. Uh, So I think a huge learning point for for everyone in camp, our ranger crew, but also I I think just points back to the the real importance of someone. If you feel off or you feel like things, like you're having some of those brain effects or your brain vital signs are changing, that's like, I've got to get out of this situation and not succumb to the, I'm just going to take a nap here. Um, and yeah, stay in the tent because right. I feel bad. Um, he that that second climber undoubtedly saved his partner's life, um, and yeah. I think that was very evident to everyone involved in this incident. Um, so we ended up taking that patient. Obviously, we took him on a sled uh, from camp. The forty-year-old male back to our tent and and continued to treat him for the next two days. Um, as, as that storm continued, we couldn't fly onto the mountain. And so we, we kept him in camp to continually monitor and treat him. Uh, I think the, the thing of note also with the 44 year old partner is that he came over later that night. So we had kind of 
finished up the night, fed everyone, got everybody kind of ready for the evening. We're going to keep the the main patient in our tent. Sent the other patient uh, with with some of our ranger staff back to his tent, got him all settled in. Then a couple hours later, he came back. He's like, you know what? I just don't feel well. Um, And so we ended up taking him under our care too. And I think just kind of the excitement of the event and also the fact that he, the second climber, wasn't as severe we focused all of our attention on, on this one. We checked in with this second climber multiple times, had him at our camp for two hours. And I think even he, due to kind of adrenaline, excitement of all this that had gone on, wasn't really clued into what was going on with himself kind of in the long term. He said, you know what? I still have a headache. I still feel dizzy. I still feel the effects of this carbon monoxide that made me get out of the tent in the first place. And so we ended up taking both these climbers into our care for that next two days and essentially just alternated treatment. Uh, with him for that time period. The second climber fully improved. Um, The first climber, as I mentioned, his mental status never got to the point where he remembered those events. Uh, He was able to fully function and would be what we'd call a reliable patient for the rest of our time with him. But but those memories never came back to him while he was in our care. Uh, Ultimately, we were able to safely evacuate them uh, from the mountain and got them some some follow-up uh, treatment at one of the hospitals uh, down closer to Anchorage, uh, just to check for kind of the longer term effects of that exposure to carbon monoxide. Uh, that did it. But again, a, a story not that dissimilar to yours. Um, that thankfully both right. had great outcomes. But you can see how close both of your teams came from a very different outcome. Uh, had right. had you each not had that friend that got out and was like, I'm going to drag you out if you don't get yourself out. Something's not right, right? <laughs> what are the statistics and what? how often does this happen? And so I, I spent a bunch of time looking at that and I had a uh, suspicion that the numbers and the statistics are kind of all over the place. I think most statistics are driven at kind of the urban side of things. And we're talking about kind of a wilderness medicine scenario. Um, in the urban realm, you hear about it when heat goes out and maybe people bring in other heat sources or keep cooking in their their house and increase that CO uh, uh, essentially concentration in their, their housing unit or wherever they're staying. You hear about it in that context. You hear about it Unfortunately, in suicide attempts, when people are in an enclosed space with a motor vehicle, we'll say, or burning some other fossil fuel. Um, you also hear about it when kind of ventilation gets uh, blocked. So maybe chimneys or the vents that are supposed to vent a house of carbon monoxide um, and, and carbon dioxide, that when those aren't happening um, because of that blockage, those are when you hear about it. But again, the statistics aren't great and the numbers are all over. So I'd hate to give you any number. But when I look at it in the wilderness context, uh, again, there aren't great numbers to back this up. But what I would say, kind of anecdotally in what we've seen, I think it happens a lot more than we think. I would venture to bet that almost all climbers, when they're on an expedition for a prolonged period, whether it's your ski trip or a climb on Denali or another place, especially when there's storms and people are cooking inside, we think we're ventilating and we think we're opening maybe one door and that's good enough. But I bet you that we're all experiencing some level of carbon monoxide poisoning. Most of us keep it kind of at that mild uh, kind of range of symptoms where we might have no symptoms at all or maybe just feel a little tired. And then we go out and we go ski or we go do other things that helps clear our body of that carbon monoxide. And then we come back and do it all over again. So we might kind of have this chronic low-grade 
carbon monoxide poisoning a lot. We also on the mountain and in other places, we see other things that look a lot like carbon monoxide poisoning. Anything that looks like uh, it affects the brain, like high altitude cerebral edema or a TBI, traumatic brain injury, or even AMS, acute mountain sickness. Like there's a bunch of things that look like sleepy, headache, nausea, vomiting, like even the early stages of shock look like that. And so we might just not be cluing in sometimes that, hey, this might be carbon monoxide poisoning or carbon monoxide poisoning in conjunction to other things. Um, so although I don't have stats for you, I, I would anecdotally say that we actually experience it more than we like to think. Um, and it just might be kind of stays in that mild side of things. And if you had had good weather that afternoon, maybe you guys would have been out skiing and then you clear it all out of your system, come back, cook dinner, and then essentially start that cycle all over. But I think we do see it quite a bit. So then how do you, what's the treatment? What's the treatment for this? That's a great question. I kind of want to break this into two answers because I, Keeping it practical, I think for the the climbers listening and the folks that are in the backcountry listening, you really have one option. That is changing their environment, getting them to fresh air, just like your partner did, just like the climber on Denali's partner did. Like get them to fresh air. That is the treatment. Get them out of that place where there's that higher concentration of carbon monoxide. That's what you do. They need fresh air. Um, after that fresh air, you should monitor their ABCs, just like you do the airway breathing circulation, just like you do with any patient, but getting them out is, is number one. Uh, if you've got it available, and I think this is where we start to transition into, to our side of the answer, the kind of rescue side of things, supplemental oxygen is great. So normally I said, we've got kind of that 21% oxygen, uh, environmental air putting on a non-rebreather mask or a nasal cannula, those are things that are going to bump that percentage up from 21. So we're just going to, if that patient's breathing something in, we want it to be as much oxygen as possible. So if there is an open receptor on those red blood cells, we want that to get filled by oxygen and not by carbon monoxide or anything else. So the other thing we use that is not typically used for this, um, but we, we use it more for the altitude signal is our portable hyperbaric chamber. Uh, some people refer to it as a Gamov bag. That's just a name brand. But those portable altitude chambers that we put patients that have HAPE or HACE in to simulate a, a more oxygen-rich environment and a decrease in elevation. Um, and so we used it uh, for that in conjunction with the oxygen therapy for that couple of days, just trying to get any of that carbon monoxide out of their system that we could um, over the course of their care. And we definitely use it more on the severe patient than we did with his partner. You know, that's stuff that we have access to or that a professional rescue team might have access to. But for, for everybody listening, it's like fresh air, fresh air, fresh air. That's what we need to right. do for these folks. Just like what happened to you. What did ha- So after you came out of the tent, Ashley, how long do you feel like you felt a bit off for you and your partner kind of before you were feeling that- better? Yeah, I would say the rest of the day was just sort of blurry to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a headache initially. Um and then, you know, maybe a couple of hours after I had stepped outside into fresh air, I started to get a headache. Um, so, yeah, but the rest of the day, I just felt uh, off. Yeah. And I think that's one of the kind of symptoms of what we talked about before, where this carbon monoxide molecule hangs on to those hemoglobin receptors for a while. And so just coming out into the fresh air 
is not going to fix the problem immediately. Like you had hours until your body had kind of fully processed, either absorbed or gotten rid of that carbon monoxide that was in your system. And that just takes time. We saw it in the patients on Denali. You saw it in your scenario where it's going to take half a day or maybe a full day. Or even in this case, we had two days where that, that more severe patient wasn't really back to normal, according to both him and his partner. Um, I think what you mentioned something too that was was pretty key, where it's like I know about this. Like I've taken my woofer or my WEMT course. Like, like cognitively, I know about carbon monoxide poisoning. The thing that was was great about the scenario on Denali, the the second climber, the forty four year old, he was a fighter pilot, and his training truly kicked in in this scenario where he was in this tent probably a really high load of carbon monoxide in there they'd been cooking in there for he thinks about an hour and they were like low temperature simmer cooking they were cooking like a soup or a a broth in this tent for a long period of time and his training told him i'm not okay right now i need to get out of this scenario in his fighter pilot world he he said he would have checked his oxygen regular and his mass to make sure that he was still getting the oxygen he was supposed to be and start working through his system in that scenario which was new for him but the same thing his brain said this is bad i'm not okay i'm out of here and that's essentially what saved him and his partner's life um, and so i think the same thing that you mentioned we could know all about this but really cluing into when you notice changes in your partners or in yourself, like change your environment, change your scenario, figure out what's going on and don't just get lulled into what your body wants to do, which is just sleep. I think we had a ton of lessons learned in this one. I I think kind of thinking about uh, the aftermath of all this. The first is I mentioned, this could have had such a catastrophic outcome. Both of these scenarios we've talked about where your team was just found at some point when someone else came to pick you up or when some yeah. other team came upon you or when we finally realized, hey, that tent, we haven't seen people there for days. Um, similar to the events when we've had fatalities on the mountain, is, is it, it can be really dire consequences if somebody doesn't get out of that tent. I think for us as a responding team, this was a great lesson for me personally. It was my team that responded to this. I had four other volunteers with me, but that scene safety idea, remembering, okay, am I diving into that same scenario in that same tent that this person was just in that is a bad, harmful environment? So when we say like change their environment or get them to fresh air, I've also got to weigh that with like, can I get in there safely and drag them out without succumbing myself? And, and so I think that scene safety reminder was a, was a great one for me and my team uh, that we talked about afterwards of like, hey, you know, we kind of rush over there. People call for help and all of us have that innate desire to go help people. And you can't ever forget that piece of just taking that minute, taking that 30 seconds and making sure like, is the scene safe for us? And then I think that brings us to that last one of like, it just always comes back to your patient assessment system. It doesn't matter what is going on. If it's HACE, if it's AMS, if it is a traumatic brain injury, if it's carbon monoxide poisoning, do they have an airway? Are they breathing? Are they circulating blood and are they not bleeding? Like those ABCs every single time in an emergency, like that won't fail you. 
well, what what else can we do to to prevent this? Like, I, I don't want to scare anybody off, and I don't want people to say, "Oh my gosh, I I'm never going to go snow camping again." That's that's not what we want to do. So, you know, other than ventilating, what is there anything that we can do to prevent this? Yeah, I think I think that's that's a great way to end because that is and should be the take home message for all your listeners is there are ways to prevent this. And it just takes you maybe educating your partners because you heard this or because you took a class. Um, and then also hearing your story and then in the future, like as soon as you feel that way, like, okay, I'm going to actively fix this and get out of here. But there are a couple things we can do just know. So this carbon monoxide is form. It's a, just a kind of colorless and odorless gas. Um, it's a byproduct anytime we're burning fossil fuels. So it is, the most common scenario is going to be when we're cooking or using a stove and we're burning fuel um, in an enclosed space that's not adequately ventilated. Even what the manufacturers tell you are vents like, likely aren't enough. And so you should really have vents on both sides of your structure or on every side of your structure open. Like get every vent open. I know that it can suck. Like you're in that tent because the weather's bad or because it's really cold outside or because it's maybe windy or snowing. Maybe if you're like, I can't ventilate this tent well enough, that means that you Rochambeau and somebody's cooking outside. And <laughs> and as bad as that seems, it's better than the alternative. But the vents that we think uh, we have open or when we just like crack a door, especially just a single door, there's no way for air to move in and out of that tent. So you've got to at least have the ability for some of that like cross ventilation and to go in air to come in one side and go out the other. I think where we see this problem, uh, in larger proportions is when we're in kind of low wind states. So maybe it's just really snowing outside, but there's not air moving around. Then I think that with without that kind of wind to blow through our tent, the ventilation's even further compromising. So open every vent you got, maybe open a full door or someone committing to just get outside. I think a couple other pieces is during storms, kind of the most tents, uh, kind of the double wall or the two layer tents where you've got a vestibule and then that internal body of the tent, those openings at the bottom have to stay clear. So some of the ventilation too is just coming along kind of the ground surface and getting up under that rainfly in between your tent and the rainfly. And so that has to be open. So it requires constant shoveling, which is again something that's not very attractive. But you got to like in your Arctic oven, like getting out and clearing away those spaces that are at the base of the tent so that air can then get up and under the rainfly or up and under the kind of outer tent material to then further improve or increase circulation is another key one. A couple others when you're uh, when you're cooking, um, we've all probably started a stove where at the beginning of that priming process, you got kind of the yellow flame. It's the blue flame that you want. The blue flame is a really hot, efficient flame where it's giving off kind of less carbon and less carbon monoxide byproduct. So you want hot stoves that are working well. You don't want the yellow flame. You don't want flames that are kind of sputtering. And you definitely don't want to be simmering which is what we talked about in that Denali scenario where they were in that tent cooking for a long period of time. Storms, I know it's kind of one of the things you have to look forward to in a day of like you've run out of things <laughs> to talk about, you've read both of your books, and you're like, well, I'm going to make like mom's stew for the whole day. <laughs> and that's the worst thing you can do. So 
don't cook for a long period of time. Like boil water, boil food, get it done, and minimize the amount of time that you're burning anything uh, inside your tent, I think is another one. But hot stove, as well ventilated as you can, and then kind of getting out and clearing away. And that, in some storms, can be every hour. Somebody's getting out of the tent and just clearing away all that snow that's at the base and kind of preventing some of that that ventilation from happening. I think those are probably the biggest and best kind of prevention strategies we can give um, for folks. And then again, I think another strategy we've heard about is during cooking, maybe that's a time to have one person outside, maybe one person, great, they're going to the bathroom, or maybe it's a person that's going for a ski so that you've got somebody who's got kind of that objective and clear uh, frame of mind, like your partner did, was like, hey, I'm just going to get out here for a minute. And then once they got out, they realized, oh, it's really bad in here. And, and then I need to take action. And so I think those are some of the strategies that can help prevent this from ever happening. But it is pretty common. I think we experience it probably more than we think we do anytime we're cooking in our tent because they're just not as ventilated. Like in your kitchen, you've got like a fan that is pulling away. Yeah. And in the mountains, when you think that like a two inch opening in one door in some nylon three person <laughs> tent is going to do the same thing, like. I think we can all be honest that that's not adequate. Well, I really hope you learned some things from Dave today about carbon monoxide poisoning. And I don't want this to scare you off from ever winter camping or from cooking in your tent during a blizzard, but I do want this to make you aware of the possibilities. Thank you so much for listening to the Sharp End Podcast. If you feel compelled to donate, please head on over to the American Alpine Club's website, click donate and toggle down to the sharp end. For every donation, I'll send you a handwritten thank you card along with one brand new sharp end sticker. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor and thank you to the Colorado Hourbound School, Sunto and Kavu for being contributing sponsors. To enter to win the Nevada 18 liter ski pack from Mammut, hashtag play hard and be smart on an Instagram post showcasing why you deserve this pack. Make sure to tag Mammut NA and the Sharp End Podcast in your post. Cutoff date to enter is December 14th, and I'll do the drawing on December 15th. Good luck! The Colorado Hour Bound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. Explore personal growth through authentic adventures while backpacking, rafting, climbing, and navigating in the Rocky Mountains and Desert Southwest. There is more in us than we know. Start your journey at www.cobs.org. When you have your mind set on a certain goal or adventure, you want to make sure that your watch can also go the distance. With up to 120 hours of continuous exercise tracking, the Sunto 9 is built to last just like you. It is also tested tough through hundreds of hours of military-grade testing and built with durability in mind. Join the American Alpine Club today for an exclusive discount on the Sunto 9. Remember, play hard and be smart. <laughs>